Hey everybody, welcome in. This is another edition of the Nigel Yeldon Podcast. I am the aforementioned Nigel Yeldon. So glad that you are with me. Uh, thanks as well for everyone's understanding with regards to uh, No Wednesday Night with Nigel broadcast or podcast this week. And some family things, got to take care of those. Got to have that as the priority and I, I really do appreciate the fact that the people who follow the Facebook page, Nigel Yeldon Sport. Um, no, sorry, facebook.com forward slash Nigel Yolden Sport. I understand that you appreciate that. To the podcast listeners as well, I do appreciate that. You will understand as well that there are times in life where as much as you like to have regularity and there are things that you like to do because they make you feel really good, um, from a personal point of view, you have got to do what is right for your family. This week was one of those weeks. So I do thank the people who have still taken the time to send through some questions to contribute to this podcast, the Nigel Yolden podcast, and uh, fingers crossed we'll be back up and rolling next Wednesday night with Wednesday night with Nigel. Right, uh, some of the questions that have come through, a little bit of football, uh, plenty of rugby, oddly enough, um, and a little bit about officials as well. So um, thank you to those people who did send the questions through. A reminder, just keep an eye out, uh, give the Facebook page a like, that is Facebook.com forward slash Nigel Yolden Sports. I put a post up. You can put your questions there. And then you can either watch the broadcast of, uh, of Wednesday Night with Nige, uh, or if I'm not doing that, it'll come up on the, the Nigel Yolden podcast when I get the opportunity, which is what we are doing right now. So let's uh, crack on into this, and let's get things underway with... I'm going to combine two. So DG's come through with, would a Super Rugby competition work with teams from New Zealand, Australia, Japan, and two Pacific-based sides? And then Isaac has come in with the, should World Rugby be doing everything they can to have a world, a Club World Cup like soccer does, or a one-off game between the Super Rugby champions and one of the Northern Hemisphere's top teams? I think a one-off games and or a little tournament, which Northern Hemisphere's a comp. What do you think is best, and should they play the Crusaders? Cheers, Isaac. Okay, so let's deal with DG first, and then I'll roll into Isaac's, because they are very much intertwined. Would a Super Rugby comp with Aussie teams, New Zealand teams, Japanese teams, and Pacific-based teams work? Yeah, of course it would. The, the big issue here is, though, that in terms of the Japanese sides, they are run by big, big businesses. We are talking top 50 companies on the face of the earth. And they run roughshod over the Japanese Rugby Football Union. And, and that's part of the issue there. Now, you know, would the likes of a, a Panasonic like to get involved? Possibly, but they've invested so much in their own top league that you know we saw the reason why the, the Sunwolves really battled because it was trying to get some of those players away from those particular clubs. So, would that work? Yeah, it would. Would the Japanese uh, agree to it? Would you be able to get some of those big clubs to join? I doubt it greatly. With regards to the two Pacific based sides, DG, you know my feelings on this. I'm I'm stoked to see Moana Pacifica, but what I would have loved to have seen or preferred to have seen is that all of the franchises in Australia and New Zealand have the money supplied by World Rugby to have actually four international players from the Pacific Islands in their squads. They do that for two years, then you build up a pool and a base of talent to be able to pick and choose from. And they also get used to the intensity of Super Rugby. They get involved in the training, get those good habits. You get some of the administrators involved with franchises on either side of the Tasman too, um, in, in terms of making sure they understand how a, a franchise is run, how a uh, team needs to be structured, sponsorships, all that governance stuff, which is where in some instances the Pacific Islands fail to a certain degree, making sure you've got all those ducks in a row and then expand. So 
Would it work? Yes. I doubt, though, that you would get the Japanese, the quality of Japanese sides that you would want. And I still think that the, the in order for professional sport to really strive in the Pacific Islands, you've got to make sure that you really, it's a slow build. It can't just be a straight drop and off you go. I think you've got to make sure that you just little steps, little steps, and you build it. And you take four to five years to make sure everything is in place so that it doesn't just completely fall over inside of a couple of years. That's my own personal view. Now, in terms of Isaac's question, Isaac, I'm probably going to bore a bunch of people now, but my man, I don't know if you've heard me talk about this. Should World Rugby? Yes. And there is a great opportunity. And we're actually looking at the window right now for when they should be doing a World Club Championship. We have seen recently the Japanese season finish. We know that Super Rugby uh, Aotearoa and Super Rugby AU is all done and dusted. We know that uh, Super Rugby in South Africa, their internal competition, that is all done too. So... When you look at it, the, the European seasons are starting to wind up as well. I think there's the European Championships, uh, the, the European Cup uh, that they play for up in um, in the Northern Hemisphere. When I say the Northern Hemisphere, the United Kingdom and France, excuse me, that, in that area. So those competitions are all, all pretty much winding down. So this is my idea, Isaac. You may have heard it before, you may not. To those people who have, I'll try and keep it short and sweet. This is what you've got. In my eyes, you have got, Seven really good club competitions in terms of rugby. You have got Super Rugby Aotearoa, Super Rugby Oz, Super Rugby in South Africa. You've got the Japanese Top League. You've got Pro 14, English Premiership, French Top 14. Then you have got a couple of ones that are slowly building. You've got uh, Major League Rugby in the States, which is trying to get itself sort of back up and rolling. And this year in South America, they had... um, Superliga Sudamericana, uh, which took you know six teams and they played around, and that one's been done and dusted as well. So that's all finished. So here's what I'm saying: if you have a a mid May finish point for all of these competitions, and as I said, New Zealand, Oz, South Africa, Japan, that's all done. I think the French one is done or just about. You just do a little bit of shuffling, but you have all seven of those competitions finishing. Are all nine of those competitions finishing? Then you have a play-in game, and it's got to be a play-in game at the moment between um, who represents the Americas. So it's the winner of Major League Rugby versus the winner of Superliga uh, Sudamericana. Winner of that advances, and then you've got eight teams. You do a draw, straight, straight draw, round. Uh, so it's quarterfinal, semifinals, final. Bang. That's it. It's a three-week window. You can make a bit of a song and a dance and a hullabaloo with regards to the draw and all that sort of stuff. Um, you could even tack that on to and make it part of that play-in game between uh, MLR and uh, Superliga Americana. Uh, winner of that one, you can all tie that in. That's how you do it. It's really simple. And, and Isaac, I've said this for a very, very long time. The way you get the global window is you've got to give some of these very ego-driven Northern Hemisphere owners, particularly in France, something that makes them want to have a little bit of a wiggle and make and go, oh, well, that actually interests me. I would like to be known as the person who has the best club side in the world. That's how you get them on board. Panasonic, I'm sure, would love the opportunity to say how they are the sponsors of one of the best, the, the best club rugby side in the world. You know, so the, the, there's all these little things. So you do have to go a little bit, a little bit egoish, 
and you'll get the buy-in. But if everything is finished by the, let's call let's say, what are we looking at now? We're coming up to the last weekend of May. Let's say that everything was finished by the second weekend in May. You then have a week where you can have that MLR Superliga Sud America playoff. Then you have a week off. You do your draw. First week of June, four games. Second week of June, two games. Third week of June, the final. Then you've got a week off, and then you're into the July window. Now, if you want to give a little, a little bit more, you just shuffle it back a week. If you get everyone on board, and this here is where I think it would work, that's your window. Do we need to combine New Zealand, Australia, Japan competition, as DG suggesting? It would be nice. It's a great way to add revenue. But I think a World Club Challenge would be a lot more beneficial to all involved. So that's how I would like to look at it. I think that would work really well, Isaac. And I will I will ride and die with that one. I know it was something as well I think that Bernard Laporte might have had on his um, proposals when he was running to be um, uh, the second in charge of, of World Rugby. And and I think it works. I think it absolutely works. Um, and even, look, while those teams are playing that particular tournament, here, could you have some other little mini tournaments around the world? Of course you could. Nothing stopping that either. Um, but I think that's really a, a great way, and that's how you would then, let's say, start to get some real solidity and buy-in around a world global calendar. Much in the same way now is that a lot of cricket revolves around the IPL. I think if you can do it slightly smarter, but I think you could you could definitely do that, and you could base it in one country, countries can you know try and maybe you can spread it around, that sort of thing. Um, I, I think that's a way to do it. So that's my one, Isaac. I'd, I'd love to see that. Whether we see it or not, I don't know, but I still think that works. Uh, Ross, how good and how much class did Liverpool show to get their season back on track with eight wins and two draws in their last 10 games? Yep, Ross, they were very good. They are a very, very good side. They're coached by a very, very good manager. I, I love Jurgen Klopp. I think he's one of the best things ever to um, happen to the English Premier League. Can I just point out, Ross, though, that despite that absolute outstanding finish and some absolute class shown by your players, uh, you still won as many trophies as Tottenham Hotspur did this year. It's the reality. My team was really bad. It looks like we're going to lose Harry Kane, but, you know, it's about winning trophies. And I noticed that just looking, there was a, a press release with regards to Liverpool's kit release for next year. And it's all about, we're, we're going back, we're winning trophies. That's what you get measured by. When you're a Liverpool, it's about winning trophies. When you're a Man U, it's about winning trophies. Chelsea, Manchester City, it's all about winning trophies. Real Madrid, winning trophies. About Tottenham, gosh, even just having the chance to win a trophy was uh, was lovely for us. I mean, I mean, oh God, we don't even deserve sources, let alone cups, the way we've played at certain points. That's for real. But yeah, they're a good team. You've got a great manager, an incredibly personable manager, uh, a very intelligent manager in Jurgen Klopp. So, yeah, well done to Liverpool. Bravo. And that's about as much as you're going to say, because I'm surrounded by Liverpool supporters everywhere I look. My sister's a Liverpool supporter. She got me involved in sport, and I think was in the sport, and then was very disappointed when I fell in love with Tottenham Hotspur. Um, I've got Piney, my old mate Piney, Liverpool supporter. 
there's just so many of them just all around. You just can't get away from them. So, you know, that's that's as much love as you're going to get, Ross. That's as much love as you're going to get. But it was very good indeed. Very good indeed. Uh, Dave, hi, Nigel. Something different. Enjoyed the netball commentary. Excellent knowledge of players and the game. Well done. Dave, thank you very much. I really do enjoy doing the netball commentary. Uh, so I did a netball commentary for Sky on Monday night. We're recording this on the 27th of May. Um, so that was the game between the Mystics and the Magic. And I have done netball before. We did a, a lot of netball uh, commentary on radio. Very, very different though. Dave, it's got to be said, incredibly different. Like There are still elements, if you do call a rugby game, because having done a, a little bit of rugby now on television as well, there are certain elements which are very similar in terms of a radio call and, and a television call for, for rugby. With netball, you really do, you actually it's it is a case of less is more. You don't have to speak as much. It's about letting the the pitches because it is such a, a fast moving game. It's also quite a high volume game as well. So there's lots of whistle, lots of chat, all that sort of stuff. So you don't have to speak as much as a commentator. It's it's almost more narration than commentary would be the best way to describe it. But it, it's good fun. And the crew who do the netball for, for Sky Sport, they're just top draw. They're awesome people. And it's like everything in life, Dave. You want to work with people who are, are passionate and uh, just turn up to work each day saying, hey, I want to do the best that I possibly can. And and these people do. And it's so much fun to be involved. And you always learn something new when you do it. But a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Very kind of you to, to say that as well, by the way. Uh, and my old mate Zippy, as I say, it's going to be a very short podcast because we've only got the uh, the five questions. Although I might I might jump in because there was a couple of other things that were thrown at me um, when I put up my All Blacks depth chart. I might use a couple of them just to fill this uh, out ever so slightly. Uh, from Zippy, I know that Super Rugby referees are not neutral like Test Rugby is. However, I noted an interesting refereeing's selection for the Reds Chiefs game in Townsville on Saturday night. Nick Berry, who's played 33 matches for the Reds between 2004 and 2007, has been appointed as the referee. Don't get me wrong, I think it's great seeing former players come into the fold, uh, and in particular players like Nick, who had to retire due to concussion issues. But here's the thing, shouldn't there be a limit as to what a fair game without an influence of a former player refereeing the match? Uh, I also understand that Glenn Jackson played for the Chiefs, Jamie Nutbound was at the Crusaders and the Chiefs as well, and both had successful rugby careers. Yep, uh, We've had Egon Seconds, who used to play for uh, the Stormers as well, refereeing games in um, South uh, South Africa, and there was also another Australian ref. Granted, his career wasn't as high profile as Nick Berry's, also refereeing. I don't have an issue with it at all because I believe that Nick Berry has proven that he has got the ability to referee the game in a very impartial fashion. I think Glenn Jackson did the same. I think it was very convenient for some fans to be able to go, well, he's a former Chief. It was always fascinating to me, Zippy, because you spoke to the Chiefs, they always felt they got a harder time from Glenn than any other referee in Super Rugby. And they always felt as though Glenn at times was maybe trying to overcompensate for the fact that he was a former Chief. I've never seen it. I think for a lot of people, it's been a very convenient thing. Nick Berry, to me, has proven, as I said, his impartiality. I think he's a good referee, um, and I don't have a problem with it. And if you are going to get former players into the game to officiate at the highest level, which we're seeing not only in the Southern Hemisphere, but we're also seeing up 
in the Northern Hemisphere as well. There's a couple of referees who have uh, retired recently from the game because of, again, uh, physical injury or a little bit of burnout or just wanting, hey, this is the way I can stay involved in the game a little bit longer. That's how I want to contribute. Some people want to coach. Some people want to commentate. There are a, a small few that actually want to referee. Um, I mean, look at uh, Selika Winiata getting involved and going to be a referee uh, for seven. So, I mean, that's great. We, we need that because it's a thankless job and the more people who actually want to get involved in rugby officiating and sport officiating in general, they should be encouraged and not dissuaded. I don't have a problem with it, Zippy. I really don't. I like Nick Berry as an official. Um, the other names you mentioned, I, I was lucky enough, I used to, used to work with Jamie Nutbrown's lovely wife, Kim, top draw lady. And, and Jamie was aware of it as well, but he said, when I go out, my job is to officiate the rules of the game, and I, I can't see. You know, it's the reason why they don't say penalty crusaders or this, it's penalty red or penalty yellow or blue 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 offside in a lot of cases that's what they're trying to do names and numbers as uh, numbers occasionally you will hear because they are encouraged sometimes to actually communicate using first names which I hate personally but you will hear them do that but I don't have an issue with it I think referees should be neutral and are neutral and yes, I know there are going to be a lot of people listening to this going, oh, what about this example? What about that example? Yep, I understand that there are certain places where referees do favour the home team. I did an entire stats breakdown after a really good Aussie website broke down the the penalties for a home team versus the penalties against an away team by country in Super Rugby a few years ago. And the differential between South Africa and everybody else was just insane. And then I dived down a rabbit hole and I started looking at individual referees and actually found that whilst it was massively lopsided in favour of South African teams playing in South Africa, there was only actually two referees. Everyone else was actually really good in terms of the the penalties that have been dished out. Um, There was a couple that was just an absolute... Barry Crocker, I think one game was like 32 to 3 or something like that. And ironically, that, that referee doesn't sort of referee at the top level uh, very much anymore. But it's interesting to go through. And to the degree, Zippy, that I went, I even went and looked at a couple of the games where it was lopsided. And what I actually found was the lopsided nature of the penalty count was 100% accurate. Then I went. And watched another couple of games. I thought, okay, I probably need to just measure this out. And then I watched other, another couple of games where the penalty count was really even. And yet it seemed to me like one team was being really refereed completely different to the other. So sometimes the, the stats side of it can be a, you know, a little bit um, misleading to a degree. But back to your, your question, no. No problems whatsoever with Nick Berry's appointment, I never had a problem with Jacksons or Nut Browns or any of those guys as long as they could prove impartiality and they refereed well and when you had a second look at it, you could sit there and go, you know what, no, that's that's legit. And you're always going to find if you sit down and do a full review of a referee's game that the referee and the assistants will miss stuff. They are human beings. It's not like, it's interesting, players we forgive a mistake, referees we don't. Referees are expected to be perfect, and I think that is incredibly unfair. So, uh, long-winded answer, Zippy, to your question, but I do not have an issue whatsoever with that particular appointment, and I think Nick is 
and probably aware of it as much as anybody else, but I think all referees uh, are aware of their need to, to do that. And yes, we have seen some clangers over the course of time, but I think for the most part, uh, it's something that I don't really think is, is a significant issue for my mind. But thank you as always, my friend, for the question. Uh, right, a couple of things that came up. I did a uh, an All Blacks depth chart. Uh, so if you do want to go to the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Nigel Yolden Sport. I uh, put it up last night. So that was Wednesday night. Uh, just I go through and what I do is I just put like top five in each position. So locks, it's a top ten, obviously two locks. That sort of thing. But just a top five and a few comments on it. And a couple of the feedback uh, that I got from my depth chart last night, um, and just so you're aware, I added Brody Retallick and Bowden Barrett in this time because you know, they're in the mix for All Black Rugby. I understood, I know Brody, I think, is back in MIQ, and I don't think Bowden's too far away either. So I'm, I, that, that was enough for me. They're, they're throwing them in. So I'll quickly run through it, and then I'll just go through a couple of the comments here. So in terms of uh, All Black depth chart, Lucid in order, I've got Dewey Nukawafi, Ross, Bauer, Hodgman, and Johnson, who's been really impressive. But there's also a great group of young Lucid props. De Groot, Numia, uh, Norris. Uh, who else have I I've missed somewhat? Oh, uh, Tamaiti Williams coming through. Really strong group of young Lucid props, which I think very much needed. Uh, Hooker, Taylor, Coles and Amua, who I think are going to be the three the All Blacks will take. Takiaho lurking around there. Kurt Eklund's jumped in. I'd really love to see Ash Dixon, who I actually think is playing outstanding rugby at the moment. I just can't see him being in the mix. He will captain the Māori All Blacks, I suspect. Uh, tidy props, Tōna Fasi, Lomax, Lalala, Ta'avau and Jaeger. Locks, Whitelock, Retallick, Barrett, Tuipulotu, Vai, Parkinson and Strange starting to creep back up. This is the fourth time I've done this depth chart, by the way. Uh, Dunche, Kali Tuioti, and Goodshu. Good young pro, uh, locks coming through as well. Sam Derry, Josh Lord, they look like they could be a, a combination somewhere down the line. Blindside, I've got Frizzell, Blackadder, Yawani, Scott Barrett, I think is the, the next best option after those three guys to play um, for, for the All Blacks, and that's how I try and think about it, is what I think the All Blacks would look to do. Tom Robinson at five, Opensider, Artie, I know he's getting closer and closer back. I've got Savia, Papali'i, Karifi, Jacobson and Boshia. A little bit of a question mark around Lachlan because I understand he's going to be heading overseas to Japan. So whether that works against him, which historically it has uh, in All Black selection. Billy Harmon playing some great code at the moment too, by the way. Number eight, same again, Savia, Satutu, Jacobson, Grace and Sokola. I genuinely believe... Artie is the best option at open side and, and number eight. Hence the reason why he, he tops both of those lists. Uh, halfback, pretty straightforward. Smith, Weber, Petty, Nada, Drummond, Christie jumping up. I really haven't been impressed with you know guys saying, hey, I'm the guy. With TJ away, no one really was saying, hey, pick me, pick me. Fakatava was to a degree, but then obviously he had the injury. First five, I've got Moanga Barrett, McKenzie, Hunt, and Black. But those last three need to... You show a little bit more than what I've seen from them in recent weeks. Left wing, I've got Whanganuku at the top at the moment. Straight swap with Caleb Clark going back to the Sevens program. Uh, George Bridge, who will be back even though his Super Rugby campaign's over because of the uh, appendicitis. Rico Iwani, Braden Enor, I think, is another option on that left wing. Salisi Rayasi, Jonah Nareki, Hamdanad about that one. Second five, Haveli to me is the first option. Antolina Brown second. Then Geordie Barrett. I still maintain Geordie Barrett is a second 5'8". And I really want to see him play second 5'8". 
I think he would be great in that position. Played midfield um, for the under-20s, played midfield when he started out playing for Canterbury. I think that's his spot. I really, really do. Uh, Umanga Jensen in Nankerville, who's going nicely at the moment. Quinton Pye coming back. That's going to be good fun too. Uh, Centre, it's Antonina Brown, Rico Ioane, Braden Enor, Peter Umanga Jensen. And Lester Whanganuku was really good for the Crusaders when he played there, but he drops down because I really think they're going to look at him more as a left wing. On the right wing, Geordie Barrett, Severis, Will Jordan, Mark Talea, and Rico Ioane. At fullback, I've got Bowden Barrett on top now. I think he would slot straight back in there. I still think the preference is that 10 15 Moanga Barrett combination. If they just wanted to go with Barrett at first five, I think it's really tough to choose as to what you do with Will Jordan, Damian McKenzie, Geordie Barrett. If you play Barrett on the right wing, I think there would be a temptation to actually go Will Jordan with Damian McKenzie on the bench. Um, but I think. The fullback is a tough one because I think it's going to be so heavily dictated by what they do with regards to first five. And if Ian Foster and his selectors still believe that, um, they want to go with the dual playmaker, the dual pivot sort of a role. Remembering that if David Harvey is the starting second five and on form he should be, there's another playmaking option. So you don't necessarily have to have someone who specifically drives the short side play, which is what the, the fullback has done in, uh, for a few years now with regards to the All Blacks. So you could actually probably go, well, tell you what, we if we've got Moanga at first and Havili at second, we could go just a straight Will Jordan with Geordie Barrett on a wing if we want or have one of those guys on the bench. So I think that makes it quite interesting anyway. So that there is the, the depth chart that I have done. Uh, fire through a couple of the questions that were rolled at me. <laughs> Uh, took a couple of shots, but that's okay. We like it that way. Uh, so here we go. What do we got? Hayden, I agree with most of your calls, except Geordie isn't a wing. Geordie is a wing. That's where Geordie's been playing a lot of rugby for the All Blacks. And Hayden, remember, it, these. when I'm doing this list, it is a little bit mine, but the majority of it, I'm trying to think, what are the All Black selectors going to do? And I still think that Geordie is probably their preferred option on the right wing because they want to get him on the field. And because he doesn't fully dominate the 15 jersey the way that his brother does, I think that's his best spot to get in, and we have seen them play him on the wing in that particular position. That's the reason why I think he is their best option at winger. I personally, I, I repeat, Geordie Barrett to me is a second 5'8". He's a great ball player. He can offload. He's got size. He's got. He's confrontational. Dude gets angry. He's got a he's got a bit of red mist about him, and and I I wouldn't mind seeing that in the number twelve jersey. I think it would be very interesting. We know he's got the playmaking abilities. No, he's got the kicking option as well. But he loves the physicality, loves the contact. So, with regards to the winger, that's where I think the All Blacks would use him. I'd use him at twelve. I think he's I think he'd be a great twelve. But that's just me, Hayden. Uh, from Carlin, Carlin now, I like how you have Geordie Barrett in the second fives. I think he's the right attributes of that school. Agree. Um, how close was Wes Hewson to making this chart? One of the most underrated back. Yeah, Wes is right in the mix. I, I look at Wes Hewson, Jonah Nareke, Celicia Reasi. These are all players that are sort of in and around. If he'd been fit as well, Jonah Lowe, I think, is starting to do some nice things with regards to the left wing spot. Um, I like Wes Hewson. I've always liked Wes Hewson. He always reminds me, Carlin, of a player who just would figure out the way to get up. 
and make the next step. So if he ever got selected for international honours, he would just figure it out. Havili was always the same to me. He just looks like the kind of person, right, okay, I'll just, I'll work through it. I'll figure out. I, I'll, I'll make sure I get up to that level. I'll work it out as I go to a slight degree. Um, but Wes Hurston is a really good all-round rugby player and has been for a very, very long period of time. So very close, Carlin, very close indeed. From Tony, where is James Blackwell on your list of locks, Nigel? The bloke is a machine with massive ticket. He is, but he's very one-dimensional. And that's the thing. When you look at the people who I've listed above him, there is some multifacets to him. Blackwell is great, but you know when he gets the ball, he's tucking it under his arm and he's trucking it up. He's not going to get many good metres. He might get a, a, a metre or two over the gain line, but he'll take the contact, he'll drop, he'll present, and you're going to get good, quick, clean ball. You know it'll be good when it comes to the line out town, but you look at the other options that were around. You look at the ball playing skills of a Brody Retallick. You look at the ball playing skills of a Sam Whitelock. You look at Patrick Tuipilotu, Tupovai. You look at Parkinson and Strange. It's the ball playing factor is the reason why I don't have James on the list. Yep, top 10 ticker. Um, my mate Steve Gordon, who knows a thing or two about second row forward play, he calls him the tractor. Just keeps going and going and going and going but just a smidgen one-dimensional. And that's the reason why he's not on the list at the moment. But again, he'd be another player. If you put him up there, he would not let you down. He would find a way. It's just others around him are just so much more skilled at the moment, Tony. That's why I've gone with him. From Kyle. Bit lazy going with second equal at 15. Nigel, get off the fence with the old winking emoji. It's hard because the 15 is so dictated to by what they do at 10. Because if they actually go, right, we're just going to go straight head-to-head. Bodie only wants to play 10. We're not going to consider him as a 15. So, right, if you play Moanga at, at first 5-8, pair him up with Havili. There's actually your twin pivots, your dual playmakers, if you still want to go that side of things. So you could actually start a Will Jordan at, at, at fullback with a Geordie Barrett on a wing if you wanted to. Or vice versa, you could interchange those two. Um... And then, you, you know, the likes of a, it's either a Bodie or a Damien on the bench. If that's the case, do you even need, you know, what happens in that situation to, to Damien McKenzie? He might become superfluous to requirements. Um, so that's the reason why all three of the guys I bracketed, which is Geordie Barrett, Will Jordan, Damien McKenzie, they all bring unique attributes to the position. They all wear 15, but they play it in a different way. As I've already said, Geordie has the ability. We've seen him do it a lot for the Hurricanes, past second, third phase, step in, drive it as essentially a first five. We know he can play 12 and 13, so he's got that ability to be confrontational, great kicking game, good in the high air, etc. Jordan um, has got beautiful subtleties to his game. He's a great line runner, great pace. He can spot a gap. Um, but again, you don't often see him stepping into that first receiving role. I guess he's more of that traditional fullback, a la a, uh, a Christian Cullen type, I suppose, if you want to make a comparison. More uh, a Cullen or even a John Gallagher sort of plays the position well, defends it well, runs great lines, great angles, really smart, intuitive uh, runner as well. And then Damian McKenzie, again, good in the air, good positionally, good kicking game. Um, he, he is good in the air even for a wee fella. He's brave as... Um, but he's more that, you know, is quite happy to run sideways for 30, 30 metres, knowing that if I get to the outside of the person I want, I can turn the corner and go up. So there's very different ways of playing the position, and that's the reason why I've got all three of them, Kyle, because it's so dependent on 
what happens with the rest of the squad, particularly at 10, as to what happens there. So it's an, it's an interesting one, and that's why, you know, what they do at 12, because I think Haveli on form deserves to be the starting 12 for the All Blacks. And these are guys who are real playmaker, great kicking game, can step in at first receiver. So they've got options there if they want to tweak it slightly and rather have their playmaker as the 15, they could have their playmaker, the dual playmakers, as an actual 10-12. So hence the reason why I sat on the fence a smidge with that one, Kyle. I hope that replies. I know you got the old wink going, but there you go. Your wink got you around about, what, five minutes worth of banter out of it. So I do appreciate that. Uh, that's it. Well, that went a bit longer than what I thought it was, actually. Uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. This is the Nigel Yolden Podcast. A reminder, we've got a couple of podcasts going. We've got Wednesday Night with Nigel. It's a Facebook Live broadcast that we turn into a podcast. Facebook Live normally gets underway around about 9 o'clock. On a Wednesday night, I'll put a post up on a Monday on the Facebook page. That is facebook.com forward slash Nigel Yolden Sports. Send me through a question and either watch the Facebook Live or listen to the podcast to hear your answer. If you're on the Facebook Live, you can actually interact and send me a couple of things. We can bounce back and forward and uh, do that sort of a thing. And then we got the Nigel Yolden Podcast, which just every once in a while, if I feel like I've got something to say or just want to have a bit of, bit of banter, get some things off my chest. Gives me a great portal to do it. Or I might just want to have a chat with some folks uh, about certain things which I've done before. Um, So yeah, that's it. That's basically the two podcasts that we do. And I really do appreciate your time. Thank you to those people who sent the questions through. Thanks to the people who posted comments on the All Blacks depth chart. And I've just used them as questions to flesh out the the podcast. I thank you very much. Uh, I hope there is uh, no problems with me doing that. I greatly appreciate it. Everybody have an absolutely uh, cracking week. Great weekend of sport coming up. Fingers crossed they can get everything sorted out in, in Melbourne uh, too sweet too because we don't want anything really interrupting some of the great sport that takes place in that part of the world. And of course uh, to all the people in Victoria, please stay safe. Uh, we are thinking of you. We know it's tough. We know this um, pandemic thing's an absolute sod and we know what a beast COVID can be. So please just make sure you're doing the right things, listening to the right people. And um, look, we, we really hope that you can get through this nice and quickly and we can get out the other side and get some really good sport rolling in that wonderful sporting capital of the world. Thanks everyone for your time. This has been the Nigel Yolden Podcast. We will catch you again shortly.